This is Blankenship on Trial, West Virginia Public Broadcasting's podcast about former Massey CEO Don Blankenship and the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster. I'm Scott Finn, Executive Director at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. We'll look at the evidence, the arguments, and why it matters. This is Blankenship on Trial. I'm Scott Finn. We've entered the third week now of the trial of former Massey CEO Don Blankenship, and for the first time we're hearing from the man himself from recordings that he made before the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster. Blankenship is charged with conspiring to violate federal mine safety standards and lying to investors about his company's safety record following the 2010 explosion that killed 29 men. This week, jurors heard actual testimony from miners, mine executives, and recordings of those phone conversations. Here to discuss the case is West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Ashton Mara, who's been in the courtroom since the trial start, and Mike Hissom. He's an attorney with the Charleston law firm Bailey & Glasser. He's also a former assistant U.S. attorney who worked in the early stages of this investigation prior to it getting to Don Blankenship. Mike and Ashton, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Scott. So today we had a major witness, David Hugert, and he's the president of one of Massey Energy's coal groups and oversaw production at three mines. So what did he have to say? What was the government bringing him out for, Ashton? Hugert was the president of Green Valley, which was a Massey coal group. And basically, he was there to show this top-down pressure that he received when he was working for Massey. Pressure to produce coal in particular, he said he received directly from Blankenship and from Massey's COO, Chris Adkins. He discussed times that he wasn't able to run his mine safely because they were understaffed. He read a memo that he received from Blankenship that said, quote, you do the worst job managing man hours I've seen in 30 years. Hugert also made it very clear that he was instructed by people above him to call underground, call these miners and warn them when a mine inspector was on site. And Scott, like we discussed la- last week, that's illegal. You can't do that. So pretty strong testimony, but uh, he's less than a perfect witness, right? He has some baggage. He does. In March of 2010, Hugert was forced to resign from his position, he said, for poor performance. But later, Massey found out that Hugert had been stealing from the company. He was soliciting kickbacks from companies that supplied his mines. He sold Massey equipment and pocketed some of the profits. And then he lied to federal investigators about these schemes. Hugert agreed to a plea deal with the U.S. Attorney's Office. He pleaded guilty to conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government by thwarting federal mine safety regulators and conspiring to violate federal mine safety standards, was sentenced to 42 months in prison. In exchange, he's agreed to work with the U.S. Attorney's Office in their investigation into Masti safety practices, including testifying in this case, which is something the defense made sure to point out in cross-examination. I'm sure they did. So we also got to hear this week from um, Don Blankenship himself, some recordings that were made before the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster. Mike, can you tell us about those? Yes, Scott. These are recordings from a recording device that was kept on Don Blankenship's desk. There was actually three different devices kept on his desk in a trailer in Belfry, Kentucky, where he worked. Um, these are recordings that were installed by the company, and so they belong to the company, uh, and they, they were for the company to turn over. And the way that they were turned over, and, and we know this from what's been publicly filed in a, in a Delaware proceeding, is that when Alpha Natural Resources acquired Massey in June of 2011, they didn't know about these recordings. And so they bought this company. It was a $6 billion transaction, and they bought this company and found out after they, they closed 
that there were 18 to 1900 recordings of the chairman and CEO of Massey Energy uh, on tape, and they turned those recordings over to the United States Attorney's Office. Well, let's get to the sound right away. Ashton, tell us about the first clip we have here. Yeah, the first clip we're going to hear is a conversation between Don Blankenship and his girlfriend, and it came at a time when Massey, when Massey's board of directors were trying to basically cap Blankenship's salary at his $12 million a year. It was something that he was not very happy about. And they just, this morning, it was just an ugly conversation. You know, they just, they talk about all my pay being in stock and all of it being on options and none of it being cash. I, finally, I said, I can't go to the grocery store and buy groceries with options. So it might be a little bit hard to hear some of that, Ashton. What's he saying? Yeah, he says at the very end there that you can't buy groceries with stock options. Just to put a pin on that, Scott, the, the issue on that recording is that Don Blankenship was having a fight with the board over whether or not they were going to cap his compensation at $12 million. His argument, you can tell from the recording and the documents that surround it, his argument was that if the stock price did exceptionally well, he should make a lot more than $12 million. He should make maybe $20 million. And the question was whether that was going to be in cash, which he was going to receive a significant amount of cash, or whether it was going to be in stock options. Mike, uh, you know, besides embarrassing Don Blankenship, what's the relevance of that? Yeah, that's been a question that a lot of people have asked, and it goes directly, Scott, to counts two and three of this indictment, which charged Don Blankenship with making a false statement to the Securities and Exchange Commission and securities fraud in, in promoting a false statement to the investing public. The theory there is that Don Blankenship made a false statement in order to support the stock price of Massey, something that he was personally invested in and involved in because he had so much of his own personal net worth tied up in Massey stock. And I guess one way to make that point is have Don Blankenship complain about receiving too much of his um, compensation in stock, although that was a way that didn't make him maybe look the best to the jury. Next, we have a clip here that comes from a conversation Blankenship was having with his second-in-command, Chris Adkins. It's after what Blankenship had called an MSHA blitz. That's an inspection blitz by the Mine Safety and Health Administration. Yeah, you know, sometimes I'm torn with what I see about the craziness we do. Maybe if it weren't for him, sure we'd blow ourselves up. I don't know. But, you know, I'm sure it's bad, but I'll tell you what, we do some dumb things. I don't know what we'd do if we didn't have them. So, Scott, this one is a little bit tough to hear, too. It's probably the worst quality of some of the recordings that we have. But you can hear him say in the middle of that recording that if it wasn't for MSHA, if it wasn't for the Federal Mine Safety and Health Administration, we'd blow ourselves up. This last clip is a conversation Blankenship recorded with Massey Executive Mike Snelling. It's a conversation about Bill Ross, who was a former MSHA official that Massey hired as a ventilation specialist. Ross was interviewed by a Massey attorney and then sent a memo about the meeting to Blankenship, and this is what he had to say about it. I had him interview Bill Ross to get his view of all these MSHA violations. Have you been made aware of that? No, sir. I, I, knew, I knew you were going to do it. You mentioned that in a, call, in a yeah, call. It's highly confidential because I, uh, I don't know really what to do with it because uh, I meant to keep it uh, privileged and confidential, but Bill, uh, his interview on our performance regarding MSHA safety is worse than a Charleston Gazette article. So, Mike, uh, besides just uh, you know adding to the egos of Charleston Gazette reporters, who I'm sure are thrilled to hear Don Blankenship say that, what's the relevance of that particular piece of tape? Why is the prosecution bringing this up? 
Well, as we've talked about uh, before, Scott, the Ross memo from June of 2009 is a critical document for the government. It featured prominently in their opening statement. And one of the difficulties in prosecuting a CEO of any company is the busy CEO defense. And the Ross recordings, the recordings about the Ross memo, cut right through that. They, they show Don Blankenship being personally involved with the reaction to this memo and, and feeling very strongly about that memo. Well, will Ross be, um, will he be on the stand at some point? And so do you expect him to be questioned vigorously by the defense? Is, is their best strategy here to, to discredit Ross? Yeah, it's clear from this, the government's opening, Scott, that Bill Ross will testify for the government. And he certainly, I think we can expect him to be vigorously crossed. The defense has vigorously cross-examined every government witness so far. The difficulty that would be inherent in cross-examining Bill Ross is that Don Blankenship hired Bill Ross, at knowing that he was a lifetime MSHA employee. He hired Bill Ross to come into the company and conduct a safety review and help them look at the company's MSHA issues. Well, and, but that's interesting, isn't it? So, and the defense has been making a big deal about this. It's not like Blankenship entirely ignored the problems. He did things like hiring Ross to come in and do a review. Um, doesn't that, to some extent, show his interest in mine safety and dealing with these problems? Absolutely. This, this goes to the fundamental issue in the case. The government is going to see and has told the jury that they see the Ross memo uh, and the, what is discussed in it, and more importantly, the aftermath of it as evidence of the conspiracy. They said in the opening statement that Bill Ross was silenced after he blew the whistle on the safety concerns at Massey. The defense is going to say the exact opposite. They're going to say that, yes, Bill Ross and his memo, it was a wake-up call to the chairman. It was a wake-up call to Mr. Blankenship about safety concerns at the mine. And they're going to focus on what he tried to do uh, in the time period. And we're not talking about a large time period, Scott. We're talking about the summer of 2009 until April the 5th, 2010, when the upper big branch mine exploded. So jurors heard excerpts from about 20 of these tapes, but the defense filed a motion today about these recordings. Mike, tell us about that filing. Scott, there was already legal argument about the 18 recordings that the government has already heard. There was actually a legal argument about 21 of those recordings, and the judge excluded three. So the jury has already heard 18 recordings. Today, the defense filed a motion about three additional recordings that the judge hasn't um, been involved with yet. And these are three recordings involving the executive in charge of the Upper Big Branch Mine. And they show uh, Don Blankenship's management style, uh, sometimes at a minor level. One of the recordings, for instance, is Don Blankenship chastising the executive about how he holds the telephone and telling him that if he doesn't hold the telephone the right way, the people that he gives orders to on the mine phone won't be able to follow his orders. It's, it's more of that color of how Don Blankenship micromanaged the company. So we had the tapes. We had the former mine executive at Green Valley. Ashton, who else took the stand this week? This week we heard from a number of miners and mine contractors who talked specifically about the conditions in the Upper Big Branch Mine. Two of those were rock dusters who testified that they often had trouble with their equipment they spent more time trying to fix the equipment itself than actually rock dusting. And rock dusting is when you spray this pulverized limestone on the floor and the ceiling and on the walls of the mine to reduce the risk of explosions. Um, there was one miner who testified that sections of the mine had water up to his chest, others sections almost to the ceiling, and that cuts off the airflow underground. 
and I thought I read someplace that the the rock dusting miner was talking about that he felt like he was set up to fail, that he could not succeed in the job the way it was set up for him. I think it's interesting. There are two things going on. Of course, there's the legal case and the things being done to prove whether or not Don Blankenship is guilty of these charges. But it seems like there's also kind of a larger case that's coming out in this trial about in the general safety or lack of safety in this mine before the accident. And I know that's come out in various reports and things beforehand and testimony in Congress. But does it feel like sometimes that that's an, a second trial going alongside the Don Blankenship trial, the trial over whether this was an unsafe mine and how that ever came to be? It feels like that's a lot of the focus. We're constantly talking about the conditions at Upper Big Branch specifically, which makes you wonder, how do they tie that back to Don Blankenship? That's the question that's in my head right now is as the prosecution goes through all of these safety violations, there was a day where they spent hours going through specific safety violations. As they're going through all of those processes, they're talking to these miners about what it was like to be underground. How do they tie that back to Don, who was in Belfry, Kentucky, you know, sitting in his office? And, and occasionally, you know, apparently sending off memos and, and having phone calls that were tr- saying things like, oh, my goodness, we need to get this under control. You know, I, I, I'm trying to do the right thing here. And yet, for whatever reason, I don't seem to be able to make it happen. I, I, I do think that, Mike, isn't that a really hard thing to prove? Even with Don being a micromanager, there's evidence that he micromanaged in all sorts of different ways. How do you prove that he was actually the guy? Well, wait a second. We're going off track. You see, it's funny how that happens. We don't have to prove that he caused the explosion. That's right, Scott. The charge is that Don Blankenship was involved in a conspiracy. So not even the the primary actor. He just has to be one of the actors, one of the people who had a mutual understanding or agreement to commit violations of the mine safety regulations and to defraud the Mine Safety and Health Administration, MSHA. Let me step back from that a second. Isn't it as easy as saying they they called ahead? You know, they were when MSHA inspectors showed up at the front gate, they had a policy of calling ahead and warning the people inside the mine that the inspectors were coming, you better clean things up. If Don Blankenship knew about that, isn't that it? Conspiracy? Game over? That's what we keep hearing. I mean, we heard that from Hugert today. We heard it from Bobby Polly, the miner who testified last week. We also heard from a dispatcher at UBB. His name was Charlie Justice, who said, yeah, that was my job. When somebody told me an inspector was coming, I called underground and I told them that that inspector was on site. But it's interesting, as soon as those people are cross-examined, their point is, isn't that the case in the industry everywhere? Don't we see this at mines all over the place? Sure. And nobody can say that that's not the case. And, and also, how do you tie it back to Don Blankenship mm-hmm. directly? I mean, no one's saying that Don Blankenship called them up and said to do this. They're saying that some middle-level person between Don Blankenship and the actual mine staff told him to do it. So that goes back to you, Mike. How, how do you tie something like conspiracy back to Don when you don't have a recording of the meeting where Don says – basically, please violate mine safety laws. You must do so. You don't. Ha- they don't have that sort of smoking gun. It's all sort of incidental, circumstantial. Right. And the government, Scott, will, will argue in closing that they don't have to have that smoking gun in a conspiracy charge. But on the issue of advance notice, I think Ashton makes a good point. There's going to be people who, who probably will, by the end of the government's case, uh, we can expect, certainly based on what was said in opening statements, there are going to be people who we can expect to tie Don Blankenship to knowledge of the idea that advance notice, and by that I mean notice that an MSHA inspector was on site, they can tie that to Don Blankenship. But as Ashton says, 
That's also common in the industry. If you would have asked anybody on April the 4th, 2010, if that was done, they would have all universally said yes. Um, what the importance to me of advance notice to the government's case is that it helps deflate the defense theme of where was MSHA. MSHA was at the mine every other day. If there was some fundamental problem, if there was something that was dangerous, if there was something that was that was so criminal that it was a conspiracy underfoot, why didn't MSHA do anything about it? And the government will use the idea of advance notice and cleaning up the mine while MSHA travels to the working section as a way to deal with that problem. Mike Hissom is an attorney with the Charleston law firm Bailey & Glasser. He worked on the early stages of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster when he worked for the U.S. Attorney's Office. Ashton Mara is reporting for us on the trial of Don Blankenship. You can find all of her latest work on our website, wvpublic.org slash Blankenship. Thanks to you both for joining me. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. So we've been talking a lot about what's happening inside the courtroom. Charleston Gazette-Mail reporter Joel Ebert is taking a step back from the day-to-day, and he's writing about both the context of the trial and also what the family members are going through. We have Joel here with us today. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, Joel, um, talk a little bit about the bigger picture with the families. Who's there? How many? And what's their reaction been so far? It's been varying each day, uh, the number of family members. It really depends on, you know, which day of the trial it was. The first day, obviously, was a very big day. Uh, had a whole lot of family members there then. Um, but now that we've fallen into, you know, the, the first full week of the trial, first couple of, you know, days of the trial, uh, the numbers have fallen down. One consistent figure in there, though, is a, a guy by the name of Gary Quarles. Uh, Gary and his wife lost uh, their son, also by the name of Gary. Uh, he was a minor and uh, died in the 2010 explosion. And he's been basically watching every single minute of this, uh, from jury selection to to up till now. And he's uh, he's just said to me that you know basically he wants to know exactly what's going on. He wants to see it all play out so he can have some sort of uh, peace of mind after the, the trial ends. Do you get a sense from the family members that they are happy with what they've seen so far? Are they satisfied? Are they have they been upset by anything? I talked to uh, a woman by the name of Judy Peterson, and uh, she basically had told me she can't have an accurate assessment right now. Um, she's watched things go. She's been there for the last two days now. Uh, she was also there a couple days last week. Um, but basically, she had said that at times she's frustrated because she can't hear the answers of, of some of these these uh, attorneys that are speaking or even some of the witnesses. And she wonders how tuned in some of the jurors are to the day-to-day minutia that comes out of this. Because you're talking about hours worth of material thrown at people who may or may not know anything about the details of mining. And so it's kind of putting a heavy weight on on those folks. And so I think that's what, what uh, Ms. Peterson's worry is, is that, you know, is this going to uh, bog them down? So she hasn't given a full assessment yet, but so far uh, she she thinks that the, the material that's been presented has been pretty damning to, to Mr. Blankenship. 
And Joel, you did a big story for the Sunday Gazette Mail about the historical context of this trial. We talk about being a trial of a generation, but there have been lots of big trials in West Virginia. Why don't you just talk about one of the ones that you researched that had a big impact on you? For me, a lot of it was just uh, research that I hadn't known. Uh, I'm not from West Virginia, so it was an opportunity to learn a little bit about the the, the interesting trials that have been here. Um, but the biggest one that I've learned, uh, and and I knew about this when I was a kid, but you know didn't realize how important it was, was the the trial of John Brown. Um, you know, basically, uh, he was on trial for treason. And this is before the state had even been, uh, you know, become a state. So West Virginia was three years away uh, when John Brown was on trial in Charlestown. But um, basically, you know, he was convicted by a jury and then hung. And uh, this was all before, you know, the, the state had broken off from Virginia. And I think just being able to look at how that lines up with the, the important trials throughout the history of the state, uh, I talked to a professor who had, who had basically suggested to me that was the most important trial this state has ever had, and that depending on the results of this case, the Don Blankenship case, that may take the title. Joel Ebert is the federal courts reporter for the Charleston Gazette Mail. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Blankenship on Trial. I'm Scott Finn. Blankenship on Trial is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Our theme music is by Matt Jackfurt. See illustrations from the trial, daily updates, and more on our website, wvpublic.org. And make sure you follow us on Twitter for the latest, at Ashton Mara and at WVPublicNews. Thanks for listening. Thank you.